Chapter 17 The Worlds of Exile and Restoration He keeps his own secure, he guards them by his side, arrays in garments white and pure, his spotless bride, with streams of sacred bliss, with groves of living joys, with all the fruits of paradise he still supplies. Thomas Oliver's The God of Abram's Praise, Stanza 8 The Davidic heavens and earth had hardly gotten underway before it fell into sin. The kingdom was split and the temple was raided. Thus, both social and symbolic polities were changed. In time, the fabric of the Davidic covenant began to wear thin. It was no good trying to put a patch on it. A new garment was needed. The new garment consisted of a world imperial order, with Israel under the protection of, or at the mercy of, a world emperor. Within Israel, the synagogues, which had previously had Levites as local pastors, were now run by laymen. The Restoration Temple, the symbolic polity, was nowhere near as glorious as Solomon's, but what it symbolized was a far more glorious and powerful spiritual presence. All of this had been anticipated in the centuries before the New Covenant came into being. First, in terms of symbolic polity, the loss of temple glory matched the loss of the Davidic house when the kingdom split. This anticipated the relatively less glorious Restoration Temple. Second, in terms of local holy convocations, while Levites continued as local pastors in Judah, in northern Israel there were very few Levites. Most of them moved to Judah as a result of persecution, 2 Chronicles 11, 13-14. Thus, God raised up prophets, and these prophets set up theological seminaries, the schools of the prophets, to train local pastors. The synagogues of the faithful, the remnant, continue to meet on Sabbaths and new moons, 2 Kings 4.23. But their pastors were laymen, trained, and ordained by the prophets. Thus, while the Levites continued to have temple duties, there was a shift away from them at the synagogue level. Third. In terms of social polity, both Judah and northern Israel were repeatedly conquered and vassaled by powers to the north and south. This anticipated the world imperial system that would come in with the Restoration Covenant. Once the people went into Babylonian captivity, God completely broke down the Davidic establishment. There was no king, and the people were directly under the imperial government. There was no temple, and the people had to get used to the idea of a spiritual temple. There was no regular synagogal structure, and the people had to make do without Levitical leadership. The new polity was thus anticipated, but the full nature of it could never have been envisioned by the people living during Israel's decline. In exile, they still envisioned that a renewed covenant would be much like the old Davidic covenant. The new covenant, however, was far more glorious than the previous one. First, God wanted the world imperial era because it facilitated evangelism. The Jews, their new name, had been told to settle in Babylon and work for the good of their new cities, Jeremiah 29, 4-7. As a result, the faith was spread throughout the land. In the Restoration Covenant, God's Spirit would be given in greater measure, and the Jews would travel land and sea, making Gentile converts. Second, God wanted non-Levitical synagogues, because these brought out the spiritual gifts of laymen and anticipated the new covenant church. Third, God wanted a smaller temple. With the Restoration Temple, we have great shift in meaning. 
Moses had seen the pattern on Mount Sinai and had built it below. The Mosaic tabernacle symbolized both the nature and the glory of the Mosaic establishment. Similarly, David had been given the directions for the temple. The Solomonic temple symbolized both the nature and the glory of the Davidic covenant. This time, Ezekiel was given a vision and blueprint for the post-exilic temple, but it was a temple so vast and huge that it could never be built. Ezekiel's visionary temple symbolized both the nature and the glory of the restoration establishment, but the temple actually built by Ezra was a small affair. Ezra's temple symbolized the nature, but not the glory, of the new restoration covenant. The New Heavens and Earth in Prophecy God announced His intention to bring judgment on His wayward people and on the nations repeatedly through His prophets. One famous passage in Jeremiah uses the cosmic language of heaven and earth to describe the fall of Judah's body politic. Look on the earth, and behold, formless and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. Look on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark, because I have spoken. I have purposed, and I will not change my mind, nor will I turn from it. Jeremiah 4.23-28 These announcements of judgment were always accompanied by announcements of a restoration, a new covenant, a new heavens and earth to come. The new covenant and the new heavens and earth ultimately pointed to the coming of Christ, but their first fulfillment is to be found in the restoration of Israel from exile. That restoration was a down payment, a pledge of God's faithfulness. After all, each new covenant, being a resurrection in more glorious form of the previous one, pointed to the new covenant. It is often overlooked that the restoration establishment was indeed a new covenant, and an advance in glory beyond the Davidic establishment. Whether we call the post-exilic establishment a new covenant, or simply a covenant renewal, the fact is that there were very great changes involved in the new cosmos, changes equivalent to the changes involved in previous new covenants. Also, the point of Zechariah 3 is that the Davidic covenant had become so defiled that it could not be renewed. And thus, what is shown in Zechariah 3 is the establishment of a new covenant. We shall return to this when we consider Zechariah's night visions later in this chapter. The book of Ezekiel is a useful place to see the restoration heavens and earth portrayed in prophecy. The message of Ezekiel to the first group of exiles was that even though the temple was going to be torn down, the true temple was in heaven and was with them wherever they went. As Solomon had made clear, God himself did not dwell in the temple, only his name, 1 Kings 8.27-29. In the first chapter of Ezekiel, the prophet is given a vision of the cherubic chariot that had been symbolized by the four cherubim in the Most Holy Place. Only high priests ever entered the Most Holy, and this alerts us to the possibility that Ezekiel will be the high priest of Israel during the exile. The fact that Ezekiel is addressed as son of man, that is, as a second Adam, highlights this. Daniel, Ezekiel's friend and co-worker in Babylon, saw the Messiah as the son of man. 
Ezekiel, as high priest, typified the true second Adam to come. In chapter 1, Ezekiel sees the chariot in Babylon. This meant that God was with his people in exile. He had not abandoned them, though he was chastising them. In chapters 8 through 11, Ezekiel sees the chariot of glory get up and move out of the temple and fly away. The temple, now abandoned and desolate, has become an abomination, and God will destroy this abomination of desolation. After the destruction of the temple comes the exile of the prince, the king of Israel, Ezekiel 12. But a twig of the Davidic house will be preserved, Ezekiel 17.22. In Ezekiel 24.16-27, God told Ezekiel that he was going to take away his wife. The death of Ezekiel's wife was a symbol of God's judgment against Israel, his own bride. From the time of her death until word reached the exiles of the destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel would be dumb, unable to speak. When the first of the new refugees arrived, Ezekiel would once again be able to prophesy. Ezekiel 33.1-22 The intervening chapters of Ezekiel are taken up with prophecies against the nations of the world. It seems that during his period of muteness, Ezekiel wrote these prophecies. The fact that they are bracketed by the destruction of Jerusalem means that the judgment on Jerusalem entails judgment on the whole world. Tyre, once allied with Jerusalem when her king helped build the temple, would be destroyed. All the nations would be brought into the New World imperial system and be subjected to Nebuchadnezzar, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Ezekiel 25, Tyre, Ezekiel 26-28, Egypt, Ethiopia, Put, Lud, Arabia, Libya, Ezekiel 29-32, Assyria, Elam, Meshach, Tubal, and Sidon, Ezekiel 32. God was laying hold on the world and tearing it apart so that he could rebuild it as a new heavens and earth. After the judgment on the sanctuary, on Eden, and on the world, Ezekiel sets out the nature of the restored world. Ezekiel focuses on the renewal of the land, which he even calls Eden, Ezekiel 36-35. After discussing the coming restoration and peace, Ezekiel 34-37, he tells them that there will come a time of severe trouble, Ezekiel 38-39. An army made up of people from many nations, under the leadership of a prince named Gog, will invade the land, but will be defeated. The immediate fulfillment of this prophecy was the invasion of Palestine by Antiochus Epiphanes during the intertestamental period. According to Revelation 20, however, this war provides a picture of the church's conflict in all eras. Ezekiel uses symbolic and exaggerated descriptions to highlight the fact that not only literal battles, but also spiritual warfare was to be involved in this conflict. For that reason, Christian expositors have always seen the Battle of Gog and Magog as having spiritual relevance. House-building follows an exodus from captivity and the destruction of an enemy. The destruction of one nation, Egypt, led to the building of the tabernacle. The destruction of several enemies in Canaan and Philistia led to the building of Solomon's bigger temple. Now Israel defeats all the nations of the world, organized by Prince Gog. Thus, in Ezekiel 40-48, through We have a description in highly symbolic terms of a vast, huge restored temple and land. This is not a picture first and foremost of the New Testament, but of the spiritual realities present in the Restoration. This is indicated by the context of the prophecy. 
But there are also clear indications in the text, especially the fact that the river in chapter 47 only flows in one direction, not four, and only to the edge of the Holy Land, not into the wider world. The prophecy begins with Ezekiel's being taken to a very high mountain north of a city, Ezekiel 42. The city obviously is visionary Jerusalem, and the mountain is visionary Moriah, north of Zion. We notice that the mountain is growing higher and higher with each new heavens and earth. In chapter 40, the temple is described with a tremendous stress on doorways and guard chambers. The new restoration establishment will be a time of greater openness for the gospel than ever before, doors, and also a time of greater holiness, guards. In chapter 43, Ezekiel sees the glory chariot return to re-inhabit the temple. This is a promise to those who would rebuild the temple, that God would come back to it. In chapter 44, the prince is restored, and the priests and Levites are re-established in their places. Also, Ezekiel shows that the sacrificial system will be restored. Ezekiel describes a new, huge Jerusalem that has tremendous suburban areas, Ezekiel 45, 1-8. There would be no more Levitical cities in the restoration, and so the Levites would need a place to live. In reality, they would live among the people in the land. But Ezekiel shows the spiritual reality, that they would live around the temple, Ezekiel also describes the tribal boundaries in the new establishment, boundaries that are wholly geometric and symbolic in character, but which did assure the exiles that their children would return to the land, Ezekiel 48. The things Ezekiel describes in these chapters could never have been built. The temple, city, and land are entirely visionary and symbolic. The kingdom of God in the restoration was going to be so powerful and glorious that it simply could not be pictured in any architectural model that could be built. Only a vision would do. The most interesting aspect of Ezekiel's temple is its river. In chapter 47, Ezekiel sees a river flowing out of the temple. As it flows, it becomes deeper and wider, until finally it comes to the Dead Sea and restores the sea to life. This is, of course, a picture of the cleansing of the land and of renewed life, since water has to do with cleansing and life. It is a picture of the greatly increased spiritual power of the Restoration Covenant. Let us briefly trace this river. We first met it in Eden, where it flowed out as four rivers to water the whole earth. After the fall of man, the river was cut off. Man's sin cut him off from cleansing and life, and eventually the world was destroyed in the flood. After the flood, God called the patriarchs to minister to the world. The patriarchs dug wells in the ground, and set up oasis sanctuaries. For them, the water was down in the ground and had to be brought up. They labored to provide it for their converts. In the Mosaic heavens and earth, we find a laver of cleansing in the tabernacle. There is still no outflow, but at least the water is no longer underground. In the Temple of Solomon, we come closer to a river. We have a huge bronze ocean, much higher and fuller than the earlier laver, and we also have ten water chariots. These chariots are fixed and do not flow out, but at least there is much more water, much more spiritual power in the kingdom. During the periods of the patriarchs, of the tabernacle and of the temple, God had his people placed at the center of the world. Caravans from Europe and Asia to Africa had to go through Palestine. God put his people at the center so that they could be his evangelists. He brought the nations to them, 
as the queen of Sheba came to Solomon. The water stayed in the land, in the tabernacle, and in the temple, and the nations came to it. In the world of the restoration, however, the bronze ocean is tipped over. There is no laver or ocean in Ezekiel's temple. It has finally become a river flowing out. True, it only flows in one direction, and not to the ends of the earth, but it still flows out. For the first time, the Jews would begin to move out from Palestine as missionaries, so that by New Testament times there would be synagogues and Gentile converts in all the world. We should conclude our survey by taking note of Revelation 22.1. Here the mountain has become so high that it pokes through the firmament with God's throne at the apex of the pyramid. The Edenic waters thus are finally coalesced with the heavenly waters of Genesis 1. Since the city is a pyramid, it stands to reason that the waters flow down all four sides. Thus, Ezekiel's river is transcended in the new covenant. The New Heavens and Earth as Built Let us now look at the restoration as it actually came to pass in fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecies. First, we find in the book of Daniel the fact that God's new world order involved world empires that dominated the nations. These empires would gather into themselves the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven. But in the plan of God, this was only so that they could all be turned over to the Son of Man, Daniel 7.27. The Christ to come would be the final world emperor, and his non-political church would be the true world empire, embracing and transforming every nation without dominating or destroying any of them. Daniel prophesies the course of this empire in detail, from its establishment under Nebuchadnezzar until the time of Christ. In this new world order, God's witnesses are to try and influence the world imperial centers. Thus Daniel and his friends became strong at Nebuchadnezzar's court, and eventually Nebuchadnezzar is converted. The same thing happens with the Persian court later on. Thus, in the world of the Restoration, while Jerusalem may be the world's spiritual capital, the political capital of interest to the Jews will be the capital of the world empire. This theme continues in the New Testament as Paul yearns to get to Rome and go to work on Caesar's household. Something new comes into focus at this stage of history. The importance of witness-bearing. This becomes an important theme in the books of Daniel and Esther and points to the New Testament. Daniel must serve Nebuchadnezzar faithfully and well, but at the same time must bear witness for God Most High, the Lord of Israel, without compromise. This is the theme of Daniel 1, the test of food, of Daniel 3, the three youths in the fiery furnace, and of Daniel 6, where Daniel is forbidden to pray. Daniel is the exemplary witness. He never compromises, but also never rebels. A more complex case is presented in Esther. At the beginning of the story, Mordecai wants to have influence at court, but shows a needless rebellious streak in refusing to bow to Haman. And Mordecai also tells Esther to conceal her identity, cloaking her witness, Esther 2, 9-10. When, as a result of Mordecai's proto-pharisaical and proto-zealot behavior, the Jews are put in danger, Esther is compelled to reveal her heritage and bear witness. The result is the salvation of the Jews and the elevation of their leaders into positions of influence. The compromised Mordecai, whose name means worshipper of Marduk, received honor when he assisted the king, Esther 6, but he received a permanent position when he stopped concealing his witness, Esther 10. The books of Ezra and Haggai describe the return of the people to the land 
and the rebuilding of the temple. As the people began to rebuild the temple, God gave a series of visions to Zechariah, contained in Zechariah chapters 1 through 6, that explain the nature of the temple. To be sure, to the outward eye, the new temple was not very glorious, Ezra 3.12, Haggai 2.3, but the spiritual reality of the restoration was such that the entire heavens and earth were going to be shaken, Haggai 2.4-9. Thus, if we are going to understand the true nature of the restoration establishment, we must move back into the realm of vision. As we have seen, the temple courtyard is the equivalent of a garden sanctuary leading to heaven. The altar was a holy mountain and ladder to heaven, but so were the bronze pillars, Jachin and Boaz. The bronze shaft was equivalent to the bronze altar and the capital to the heavenly temple. This is alluded to in Zechariah 6.1, Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. End quote. The meaning of this verse and its allusions have been widely debated, but I believe that the clue lies in the nature of the visions themselves. Zechariah is identified as one of the 24 chief priests of the temple, Zechariah 1.1 with 1 Chronicles 24, 4-19, and Nehemiah 12, 1, 4, and 16. He had access to the holy place and must be compared with Ezekiel, who, as acting high priest, had access to the Most Holy. Ezekiel saw the cherubic chariot of the Most Holy. Zechariah sees the lesser horse chariots of the holy place, the chariot-like water stands. Ezekiel saw water flow out from the restored temple. Zechariah sees the water chariots ride out. Zechariah prophesied simultaneously with Haggai. Both were exhorting the people to rebuild the temple. Zechariah's night visions, like Ezekiel's earlier, Ezekiel 40-48, through were designed to show the spiritual truths that the rebuilt post-exilic temple would embody and manifest. There were eight night visions, and they run from sundown to sunrise, with the important transition, the new Passover at night. Vision 1, Zechariah 1, 1-17 The first vision states that the people must lay a moral and spiritual foundation, not merely an architectural one, and then the temple will be rebuilt. The context of the first vision is a ravine, where God's myrtle people are quietly fed by hidden waters associated with the groundwater of Eden, the oases of the patriarchs, and the laver and sea in the tabernacle and temple. Vision 2, verses 18-22 through 22. The second vision states that apostate worship at the horns of an idolatrous altar was the real cause of Israel's distress, but that the rebuilding of temple and altar, the return to true worship, would be her restoration. Vision 3, chapters 2, 1-13. through 13. The third vision states that God's glory, which Ezekiel had seen depart, would return and God would again dwell in his temple. Just as the tabernacle had been built after the Egyptian exodus, so the people are enjoined to make a new exodus from Babylon in order to build the temple. Just as God had been a wall of fire between Israel and Pharaoh's army, so he would be a wall of fire to them. According to 2.8, after God's glory had taken its seat, the nations would be dealt with. Vision 4, chapter 3, 1-10 The fourth vision concerns the investiture of the high priest. Satan argues that because the priesthood is defiled, the temple cannot be rebuilt. There is no way to cleanse the high priest without temple ceremony. Thus, we are in a catch-22. But God sets up Zechariah as a new Moses, 
Moses, as prophet, had initiated the tabernacle system and consecrated Aaron based on information provided by revelation from God. Just so Zechariah, as prophet, sees that in heaven God is past judgment, and on that basis Zechariah can tell the people that Joshua had been cleansed. The system can be set back up. This meta-liturgical vision is the pivot of the series, which runs from sunset to sunrise. It comes at midnight and points to Passover. Thus, it has more the mark of a new covenant than just a covenant renewal. Joshua is given the festal robes, garments of glory and beauty, and the turban, the golden plate for his forehead, and thus the high priest is restored. The next morning, after these night visions, Zechariah would tell all this to the people. They would realize that heaven had cleansed Joshua, and thus Joshua could now cleanse the temple site and rebuild the temple. Vision 5 Chapter 4, 1-14 The fifth vision concerns the lampstand and the ministry of God's anointed king. This complicated vision shows us a new lampstand, now with 49 instead of a mere seven lamps. This is a symbol of God's spirit and power, which now will run throughout the whole earth, bringing the light of the gospel to the nations. The mountains of the world will become plains before the sons of David. Just as Pentecost came after the crucifixion and restoration of Christ, so this great outflow of the Spirit came after restoration of Joshua the high priest. Vision 6, chapter 5, 1-4 The sixth vision concerns the cleansing of Israel. The rebuilding of the temple and of the holy place, whose tabernacle dimensions are here alluded to, will result in the return of God's specific judgment of leprosy for hidden sin. Israel will be purged. Vision 7, chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. The seventh vision is a parody of the Ark of the Covenant. Instead of cherubim, we have unclean storks. Instead of a holy box, we have a round ephah containing wickedness. Instead of a trip to the Holy Land and an establishment in the temple, we have a trip out of the Holy Land and an establishment in the land of Nimrod. The point is that God's presence will not coexist with evil. And when God returns to the temple, evil will be driven out. Vision 8, chapter 6, 1 through 9. And so we come to the eighth, our sunrise vision. The symbolism of the vision draws from the temple in that there were ten water chariots in the temple courtyard. We should associate them with the four horse-drawn chariots seen in the vision. Also, though, the four chariots are the four winds of heaven which have already been identified as God's holy people in 2.6. That being the case, the bronze mountains, the pillars, Jachin and Boaz, should also be people. And who else can they be in context but Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the prince? The chariots run out to cleanse and convert the world. The sequence of renewal in Zechariah's night visions is as follows. 1. The people must repent of moral wickedness and set aside all known sin. 2. Then the people must tear down false worship altars and rebuild the worship of God. To reverse number 1 and 2 is liturgical Pharisaism. 3. When this happens, God will be a wall of fire for his people, and the numbers of the righteous will increase. 4. Then God will pass judgment on their behalf and will glorify his church. David's wilderness camp will move to Jerusalem. Humble Bible-believing churches will meet in cathedrals. 5. As this happens, God will give them a God-fearing king, a Zerubbabel. 6. 
The effect of such a renewal will be that God will also expose hidden degeneracy. A more thorough cleansing will come. 7. When the impenitent see this, they will depart, and thus wickedness will be further removed from the land. 8. Finally, God will enable the gospel to go forth with power to shake up and convert the world. Conclusion The Restoration is the least familiar and least studied phase of Old Covenant history. It is often assumed that the kingdom of God went into the doldrums during this period, and that the people simply suffered until the coming of Messiah. Such an understanding of the post-exilic era utterly fails to do justice to the case. The Restoration was actually a far more glorious time than ever before in terms of spiritual power, though not in terms of outward glory and splendor. The Restoration establishment can be set out as follows. New Names For God, Lord of Hosts, God had been called this before, but a glance at a concordance will show that this name comes into tremendous prominence in the post-exilic books, especially Zechariah. It stands to reason. After the exile, the Jews no longer had an army and had to depend on God's army for their protection. By giving them this name as their peculiar treasure, God assured them that he would indeed be a wall of fire around them. New Names for the People Jew This comes from Judahite and is exclusively post-exilic. All the children of Israel come to be considered as part of these Judahites, even those of the already exiled northern tribes who joined back up with Judah during the Babylonian exile. Grant Jerusalem and the Holy Land, but with influence through the empire. In a sense, the Jews became a world people, as the Christians would later be. The grant began to be expanded. Promise The visions of Ezekiel, Haggai, and Zechariah showed them that God was with them. Sacramental stipulations Slight changes in the worship system reflecting the new temple, the loss of many Levitical genealogical records, the loss of Levitical cities, the full establishment of the non-Levitical synagogue. Societal Stipulations The kingdom constitution was nullified since there was no longer an independent kingdom and army. The Mosaic establishment also no longer applied in many respects since the Jews were under overarching imperial laws. Note that God left them to apply the wisdom of these systems to constantly changing circumstances. They were maturing, becoming more adult, and thus were left to make their own applications. Also, witness-bearing became an important new duty. Church polity. Priests and Levites at temple, lay leaders at synagogues. State polity. World emperor who protected God's people or who chastised them. Imperial overseers such as Nehemiah and local Jewish prince such as Zerubbabel over the land. Symbol. The temple in Jerusalem but only as a rude representation of the visionary temples of Ezekiel and Zechariah.